You're listening to the Put in Work Podcast with Carter Owen. I'm joined on the podcast by Jim Trotter, a Howard University alum. He previously worked at Sports Illustrated and ESPN and is now with NFL Media. He's also a Pro Football Hall of Fame voter and has written two books on the Hall of Fame linebacker, Junior Seau. So I want to start with your thoughts on the state of sports journalism. Writers that have been in the business for many years at Sports Illustrated and other publications are getting laid off due to coronavirus. What has that been like to see these changes? And do you think the industry can recover once things get back to normal? I think anytime you see um, talented people losing their jobs, it's, it's, it's always tough. But I don't think it's just a function of, you know, COVID-19. I think if you look at the industry, it's something that's been going on for quite a while. Um, even myself, uh, the one time I've been laid off in my career was at Sports Illustrated. And I think that was back in 2014, if memory serves me right. And, and at the time, I remember I was told it has nothing to do with performance or, or any of that. Um, it was simply a function of um, the industry, and um, essentially, I, I was told I made too much money, and, and um, they could hire two people for one, and, and um, they were going to go public uh, with an IPO, and, and uh, they wanted to make it as lean as possible. So, um, I don't think it's again. I don't think it's just COVID nineteen. I just think it's a function of where our industry is now. And it, it, for me, it's always tough watching talented people um, wind up on the street. You spent around eight or nine years, I believe, covering the Chargers. And it was only right before you stopped covering them that they had a winning record. Was that difficult for you to cover a team that was so bad for so long? I think I covered them eight years. Mm-hmm. And I had made a vow to myself that I would um, not leave the beat until I saw a winning season. But having said that, it wasn't tough on me in part because the locker room was so good. The players were so professional. You know, as difficult as it was for them uh, to lose games, um, you know, or for me to cover a team losing games, I understood how difficult it was for them as players to lose games. But they were always tremendous to work with in the locker room. And so in many ways, that made it much, much easier you know, I hear these stories today where there's there's this sort of um, acrimony between the media and a, and, and a locker room or players, and particularly if things aren't going well. And I never really found that during my time covering the Chargers. And, you know, I attribute that to the, the leadership in that locker room, guys like Junior Seau and Rodney Harrison and, and others, um, LaDainian Tomlinson. Uh, so for me, um, it really wasn't that difficult. You were featured in the 30 for 30 on Junior Seau. You were friends with him. It must have been challenging to see his transformation into a completely different human being in the later stages of his life. Yeah, but the thing is, I didn't see it. I I mean, Junior and I were friends, but I didn't hang out with him. So really, the only times I really saw him were at charity events or things like that where, you know, the happy face was on. Um, so it wasn't until after his death where I started doing research for a story for Sports Illustrated and then um, research for a book that I, I truly started to understand what was going on with him and how there was this other person that I didn't know about, or, or I shouldn't say I didn't know about, that I didn't experience firsthand. So, um, and that's what was tough. You know, it, it, there were so many things going on in his life, and there were so many people that, that, 
would have been and were willing to help in any way they could. But Junior was one of those proud individuals where uh, it's very difficult to ask for help because typically, as we're learning with mental health, you know, there are so many people who think that reaching out for help is a sign of, of weakness or vulnerability when in reality it, it's truly a sign of strength. A big part of the Sayoff film is the NFL's consistent disregard for science and their inability to confront the harsh realities of the game. Do you think the league has begun to fulfill their moral responsibility to the players and to the fans to be more transparent about the dangers of the game? Well, I, I don't think there's any choice but to be more transparent about it. I think now players who play, um, they play with the knowledge of the dangers of the game and the dangers of, of um, traumatic brain injury. You know, in the past, or at least early in junior's career and whatnot, um, there was not this sort of scientific data. There was not this sort of um, awareness. And, you know, what's really disappointing, uh, or in some respects, what's tough for me to wrap my hands around or my head around is that um, when I ask players today who are retired, if you, knew if you knew then what you know now, would you have still played? Almost to a man, they say yes. Um, so I don't know how much, it, how much the league um, can really do other than, than trying to make the game as safe as it can for players, which means that the NFL we see today is not the NFL that I grew up on and many people grew up on. Um, but it, the changes are made in the best interest of, of player safety. But I, I just find it fascinating that when you talk to retired players um, who played during that era when knowledge about brain injury was not as prevalent, um, that they say they would play even if they, they would have played even if they had known what these dangers were. You know, I think that's really been an interesting aspect of all this is that not everyone in the league likes the rule changes that have been made to prevent head injuries. A common complaint among players is, well, hey, we didn't sign up to play touch football. We signed up to play tackle football. And it's a harmful game, but we know that. Yeah, look, it's a violent game. It's not a physical game. It's a violent game. And you're never going to take that out of the game completely. But having said that, I think what the league and players, in conjunction with the Players Association, what they've come to realize is that there are steps they can take to try and make it safer, whether that's through equipment, whether that's through practice habits, um, whether that's through, you know, um, the strike zone when you're tackling, all these sorts of things. So those are all positive. Are we going to see what we saw back in the 70s, the 80s, and 90s? No, we're never going to see that again on a, um, a legal basis in terms of the rules of the game. But the reality is, um, knowing what we know now, changes had to be made and will continue to be made in hopes of making the game safer for the players. In the last year or so, we've seen Antonio Brown make a lot of bad decisions. Videos of the police showing up at his house. His agent, Drew Rosenhaus, split ties with him. And a lot of people have jumped to the conclusion that CTE is the reason for all of his inappropriate behavior. While that's certainly a possibility, how do we balance being aware and mindful of CTE while not totally disregarding the fact that somebody could just be making some bad decisions? Um, I don't know that I have that answer. Um, you know, as you know, CT is not diagnosed until someone has passed away and the brain is studied. So um, 
what's going on with Antonio Brown, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a, a clinician or a doctor. I couldn't say. Um, I just know that, that the league and the Players Association as well, um, there are certain standards that players have to abide by. And if you don't, you're going to find yourself being uh, disciplined and or suspended. And that's where Antonio finds himself at this point. I want to talk a little bit about the Hall of Fame. You're a Hall of Fame voter yourself. Could you kind of walk through what goes on in the room in terms of the process of proposing players and then the eventual process of deciding who gets in and who doesn't? Well, it's a year-long process that starts with, you know, a a list of of candidates um, that could be in the hundreds. And then we have several votes where we, you know, by email, um, where we vote down, we whittle the list down until we get to uh, 15 modern era candidates. And then we go in the room the day before the Super Bowl, and each of those candidates is then um, uh, debated. And you will have a person from uh, who covered that that player or contributor or whoever. Now, the process has changed in recent years. They separated contributors and made a separate contributor category. So I'll just speak to the modern era candidates here. Um, and again, knowing that we also have a seniors category that where those folks are, are um, uh, whittled down separately and then just presented to the group for a yes or no vote. But again, dealing with the modern era players, what happens is you'll have those 15 finalists. Um, someone from that player's home city will present him to the room, and then the floor is open for debate among the 48 voters. And anything you want to say, any questions you want to raise, um, any points you want to make, that takes place. And once we get through all 15, then we vote um, to cut the list down to 10. Once we cut it to 10, we will open the floor again for any discussion or debate. Um, and then we vote it down to five. Once we get it down to five, those five um, then are voted on individually, and you need an 80% yay vote to be inducted. Um, if you do not get 80%, which has happened on several, two or three occasions since I've been a voter, um, you do not go forward. You do not, you do not make the hall. So um, that that's a long-winded. Um, Uh, way of describing the process to you. You've advocated for providing more transparency in the voting process. And I know a concern some people have is that voters could face criticism from their home cities if they were to vote no on a certain player or coach. Having said that, are there any steps you believe the hall could take to be more transparent uh, with regard to the process and to the votes? Um, I'm not sure that I know that any more steps they could take. Look, I'm just a firm believer that if you're worried about retribution or pushback in your home city, then don't be a voter. Um, I just find, I've always found it sort of hypocritical and ironic that we in the media always push for transparency, and yet we participate in a process where we're afraid to be transparent. Um, I, just, I don't agree with that, and that's why I asked the hall specifically one year, are um, we required to keep our votes private or is this simply a recommendation on your part? And they clarified and said it was a recommendation. 
So that being said, I will always disclose my votes, you know, if asked about them. Um, and if, if there are voters who feel differently about that, that's their prerogative. I just believe as journalists, um, we should be as transparent as possible. The idea of a first ballot, second ballot Hall of Famer, in your mind, is there a real significance to being a first ballot guy as opposed to having to wait to get in? Or is that something that's kind of been blown out of proportion? It's a, it's a, it's a joke, and I, I think too much has been made of it now. We act like people, like there's some sort of shame in having to wait. Um, Lynn Swan waited 14 years to get in the Hall of Fame. Does that make him any less of a Hall of Famer than, say, Ray Lewis, who gets in on a first ballot, or Randy Moss, who gets in on first ballot, to compare it to someone at the same position? Jerry Kramer just got in the Hall of Fame recently. Is he any less a Hall of Famer now than, than someone who went in on a first ballot? Um, I think this is where we get into trouble as voters, where we have what we call someone jumping the queue to the front of the line. Um, I just think, in my opinion, I've always said this, and, and some people don't like it, but we all have to have our own process for voting. If I have, if it comes down to, let's say, two individuals that I believe are both deserving for the Hall of Fame, um, and I believe they are equally deserving, my attitude is who's been waiting the longest, and that's typically the person I'll vote for. For me to vote for a first ballot for a guy, um, for me to vote for a guy in his first year of eligibility means that he has he had to have been truly above and beyond anyone else on that ballot. And there are guys like that. There are guys like um, Ray Lewis. There are guys like Ed Reed. There are guys like Jerry Rice. Um, to me, those are the their standards at their position. So I don't have any problem with that. But I do have a problem with folks acting as if if you're not voted in on in your first year of eligibility, somehow you have been disrespected or shamed and the voters don't know what they're doing. I think Tara Lowen's really publicized the debate surrounding the criteria voters should be considering when making their decisions to vote players in or out of the Hall of Fame. You've said publicly you voted for Tara Lowen's. To the extent that you can say, what do you believe should be in the realm of consideration when voters are making their decisions uh, and, and how the Hall has shifted in that regard? Well, the thing that bothers me is that when I first got on the committee some 13, 14 years ago, I was told that we voted simply on what takes place between the white lines and anything else was, was not to be considered. And all of a sudden, it seems in recent years, we've gone from between the white line to what takes place on the sidelines, to what takes place in the locker room, to what takes place in someone's driveway. And, and as I have said in the room, to um, the Hall of Fame board, as well as, you know, my fellow voters, I'm not comfortable sitting in moral judgments of people. We, I thought we were here simply to vote on their football abilities and the impact they had on the game, and that's the way I'm going to vote. Now, having said that, you can call me a hypocrite because there are certain instances where I will take off the field um, things into consideration if I know them. And... A guy like Darren Sharper, who I think his numbers are deserving of consideration, um, in good conscience, I just could never vote for him knowing what all has happened. Um, and that's not to say that you go back and remove people who are um, now in who have had issues once they got out. 
But if I know that going in, um, that's just something that I, I personally, I couldn't vote for. As sports fans, we tend to gravitate to big personalities, big plays. We also watch where the ball goes. Knowing that, do you believe it's harder for players who play certain positions like offensive line or players who are specialists to get into the Hall of Fame compared to running backs, quarterbacks, wide receivers, uh, or some of the other more popular positions? Oh, I don't think there's any question about it. If you look at it, um, prior to the recent years, uh, we had gone decades without a safety getting into the Hall of Fame. And I know that that seems laughable now because we've put in more than a few in the last few years from, you know, um, you know, Ed Reed, Palomalu, uh, Steve Atwater and others. But there was like a two decade drought where we didn't put in safeties. We don't put in fullbacks. Um, we don't we don't put in specialists, as you say, in terms of like returners. That's why I'm fascinated and really eager to see the discussion once Devin Hester comes into the room, um, how we're going to treat that, you know. We just only so many years ago uh, had the first punter going to the Hall of Fame and Ray Guy. You know, in terms of kickers, um, there are only, what, two, three? Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. So, so, yes, there is a bias, I believe, against certain positions. I do believe that particularly in this age of fantasy football, um, we are going to see the skill position people uh, get much more of a run than players, interior offensive linemen or interior defensive linemen. And that's one of the things I fight for is just don't be blinded by stats. You know, look at the context in which stats occurred or didn't occur. And also look at the impact that a player had on his team and the league. And and we do that at times. We're good at doing that. I think we did it with, with for instance, Cortez Kennedy, the late Cortez Kennedy back in the day, who was a defensive player of the year on a 2-14 and 14 team. And, you know, I, I was happy that we did not hold that against him, that he played on so many bad teams in Seattle um, that we kind of overlooked his abilities. One guy that I'm pushing for really hard right now is Rodney Harrison, um, who has never even been a finalist, let alone gotten into the room. But this is someone with um, uh, three Super Bowls, two championships, but early in his career, he played on some terrible teams in San Diego, even though he was a dominant player back then. Um, you go to New England, you know, they will tell you. His teammates have told me that he was one of the guys that set the tone. He was sort of that cliche, that straw that stirred the drink defensively when he was there because of his intensity and his intelligence and whatnot. Bill Belichick will tell you he was as good as any some safeties who were in the Hall of Fame. And yet, for whatever reason, he's never been able to get past the semifinals um, when it comes to voting. So um, that's someone I'll be pushing for. But I, I just, um, the hall is an interesting situation because there are no firm and hard guidelines about how to vote. It is all subjective. Um, it's not like you say if a guy has 100 sacks, he gets into the Hall of Fame. No, he could have 100 and you could say, I don't think he was a Hall of Famer. And he doesn't. Um, it, it's, it's just subjective, which is why I think it's tough for the public sometimes to understand how we vote or why we vote the way we do. And, and the one thing I, I strive for in the room is just to say consistency. If we, if we say one player was a Hall of Famer and another player matches or supersedes uh, the accomplishments and the performance of someone we have put in the Hall of Fame, now I need to understand why this 
this player or this person isn't in the Hall of Fame. I couldn't agree with you more on that and, and definitely think Rodney Harrison deserves as much consideration as the next guy. I'm interested in your thoughts on the new CBA. From what you heard around the league, was ending suspensions for marijuana actually something that was really important to the players or was that sort of a, a media phenomenon where the NFL wanted to look like the, the cool progressive league embracing these new views on cannabis? No, I, I, I've no, I, look, I can tell you players I've talked to, I didn't hear that as being a focal point of why they voted for in favor of, of the CBA. Look, I think eventually that was going to happen regardless, which is why I'm, I'm, I get kind of surprised when I hear people making such a big deal about it that the league, um, it was a big give for the league. Look, many states have already legalized marijuana, recreational use of marijuana. I think ultimately um, that's going to be the, the, the lay of the land. And so when and if that does occur, if and when that does occur, um, the league was no longer going to be able to suspend these players for marijuana use. So um, to me, that was not that was not the driving force behind players voting in favor of this CBA. Several players had some really strong reactions to the collective bargaining agreement during the negotiations, and then again after it was approved. Uh, JJ Watt tweeted hard no at one point. The Pouncey brothers were also very public about their feelings toward the CBA. Did you get the sense that there was a disconnect among players around the league in terms of what they wanted? Look, I think the, the, the real issue here among some of these, when folks like J.J. Watt and others um, said hard no, what was interesting is that they had not even seen the final draft of the CBA. So that was interesting to me. Um, the players who were critical of this deal who were involved, meaning players who were player reps or on the executive committee, the reasons they were um, upset about this, the ones who voted against it, as they have explained to me, is that they felt this process was rushed and they felt that there was not complete transparency. My understanding is that initially, 10, 11 months ago, the league asked the players for a proposal about what would they want to get a new CBA. The players gave them that. The owners came back and then said, well, in order to give you what you want um, or to move in that direction, we're going to have to increase revenues. And the way to increase revenues is 17 games. And the players initially were a firm no, is what I was told. But it being a negotiation, the players said, well, let's hear what they'd be willing to give up for 17 games. So that process went forward. Now you get into the season, and many of these player reps are focused on football and not these negotiations. And all of a sudden, they're being told, we want you to vote on a new CBA now. And as they have said to me, um, we thought we were just hearing the owners out about what would they be willing to give. We did not understand or believe that we were going to be voting on these proposals. And that's where some of the confusion, some of the, the discrepancies came in. And I think that there are many players who believe that they did not get enough to give up or, or to um, agree to a 17th game. I want to talk a little bit about race in the NFL. You've advocated for the hiring of more minority coaches, and I'm interested to know whether you think the Rooney rule really works or if you believe owners have found ways to circumvent that rule and get away from hiring or at least truly considering minority candidates for open coaching positions. I think people have, have sort of now mischaracterized the rule. 
the rule was never intended specifically to say you have to hire a minority coach. The rule was put in place simply to slow down the process and to get more minority candidates in front of owners um, during the interview process. And so when people say, does the rule still work or does it not work? Um, I don't think the rule was ever the reason that minority candidates were being hired. Um, having said that, to me, the problem here is not the rule. It is not the league, any of that. The problem here is the, uh, are the owners. Um, the owners are the ones who hire coaches. And as Tony Dungy said to me, owners don't understand how to hire coaches. Many of them don't know what they're looking for. I'll never forget this, this after last season when a number of coaches got fired and I was asked on television, um, who would be your list of minority candidates? And I said, that's the problem right off the bat here. You're asking me for a list of candidates without telling me what you're looking for in a head coach. Do you want someone experienced? Do you want someone with no experience? Do you want someone older, younger, someone from offense, defense, someone who delegates or someone who is hands-on? You know, all of those things have to be answered in terms of, of establishing what you're looking for and what type of culture you're creating. And if you haven't answered all of those questions, what is the point of going out and interviewing anyone? So to me, it's not a Rooney Rule problem. It's not a league problem because the league has a number of programs to get minorities in front of owners. Um, it is an ownership problem. And when you talk to minorities, what they will tell you is that they believe the big issue is that owners simply aren't comfortable with minorities. When an owner has to hire a coach, typically, who do you hire if you're looking to fill a job? People that you are comfortable with, perhaps people that you share similar life experience or background experience with, cultural things, that, that sort of thing. Um, when they sit across from young black men, many of them have not dealt with them in that way, in, in social settings, those sorts of things. So until you can get owners to see the value um, in hiring the best person, regardless of race, I think you're still going to have this issue for quite some time. This past season, I thought Mike Tomlin did an all-time great coaching job. He dealt with lots of controversy surrounding different players in the organization. He lost Big Ben to injury. They had to move on from Le'Veon Bell and Antonio Brown. Uh, you know, He had to play a second and third string quarterback all year long and still managed to guide the team to an 8-8 eight and eight record. Yet, mind-boggling to me, some people were still saying he was on the hot seat and needed to prove himself. In your opinion, are black coaches in the league held to different standards and expectations than their white counterparts? Let me, let me give you an example. Um, so Detroit had gone to the playoffs once in 14 years. They hired Jim Caldwell to be head coach, who was African-American. Jim Caldwell takes them to the playoffs twice in four years. He, he has three winning seasons in those four years, and he gets fired. And, and, we're, and, the, and the, the, the um, narrative is he was fired because the GM, Bob Quinn, says they want to be able to go to the next level. Now they bring in Matt Patricia, who in two years has won a total of nine games. He still has a job. Jim Caldwell does not. Those sorts of things, um, minority coaches see that, and they question that. So Steve Wilkes 
when, when he got hired in Arizona. He was the last of eight coaches hired that year. He didn't have time to put together the staff that he wanted. And yet, he gets fired after one season. But the coach who comes in behind him has a losing record. He's still there after his first season. These are the kind of things that get the attention of minority coaches and why they say that the playing field is not level. Now, some will come back and say, well, Marvin, Marvin Lewis was in Cincy for all those years, and he was 0-7 in the playoffs. So you're picking one outlier against all of these other examples. Um, I just think, look, again, hire the best people, give them the, the same opportunities that everyone else has had and has. And then let's go from there. Um, the thing is, again, I don't think owners know what they're looking for in a head coach. Uh, this thing now about you have to hire someone from the offensive side of the ball. Two of the best coaches in the history of this game, or let's just do the, the best coach in the history of this game right now, is Bill Belichick. He wasn't an offensive coordinator, some offensive guru. So you simply want to hire people who are the best at what they do. Um, and I think if owners went down that road and had a clear understanding of what it is they're looking for in a coach, what they want from him, what kind of culture they're trying to create, um, you would hope that we would alleviate some of these problems. On that idea, owners hold their positions for very, very long periods of time. You know, Jerry Jones has been in Dallas since the late 80s. So if owners changing the way they think about candidates and who they consider to be candidates is the best way to fundamentally improve the chances of a minority coach being hired. Is this something that's going to take a while before we're able to see the improvements and the progress being made? Uh, I think it's going to take time. I don't think anything's going to change overnight. Um, as we saw again in this hiring cycle, um, coaches, I'm sorry, owners for the most part are still looking for offensive people. But, but that's what makes it so frustrating um, for minority coaches. You say you're looking for someone on the offensive side of the ball, offensive coordinators with that experience and whatnot. And then you have Eric Bieniemy, who coached a, a league MVP two years ago and who coached uh, a Super Bowl champion this past season, um, and he doesn't get a job. And yet the two coordinators who preceded him in Kansas City, meaning Doug Peterson and, and um, uh, uh, Matt Nagy, they both got jobs despite not calling plays just as Eric does not call plays. So again, where is the, the fairness in that? Um, it's those type of examples that, that frustrate minority coaches, you know? So this is not going to improve overnight. Um, it's going to take time. But my fear is that when we say, okay, now you'll see these minority coaches going um, to the offensive side of the ball to try and become uh, offensive coordinators, those sorts of things. Then all of a sudden, owners say, we're looking for something else. There's a new flavor of the month, and, and minority coaches are scrambling again. You know, if you're truly looking for someone on the offensive side of the ball, then you go back and you look at what the Giants did this year in their hiring, you know, of, of, of Judge, and you say, well, wait a minute. He wasn't an offensive coach uh, in terms, or I'm sorry, an offensive coordinator. He didn't call plays. And in fact, his position group didn't even play that well this past season. But he gets hired and a guy like Eric Bieniemy gets passed over. Why is that? Um, 
those are questions that minority coaches ask, and there has not been a good answer for it. One last question before we're finished. I've got to ask you about the Houston Texans. Set aside the DeAndre Hopkins trade, what they have going on over there with Bill O'Brien acting as the GM and the head coach just seems ridiculous to me. There's no checks and balances. I don't know how he could possibly be able to do both jobs at the same time, let alone do them well. And I just don't understand the purpose of having that type of power structure that seems uh, just a a recipe for disaster. Um, If you're looking for me to explain it, I can't explain it. I've written about it. Um, Most owners in this league believe in a, a system of checks and balances. They don't want to give complete control to one guy. And in Houston, where you've had a lot of change, particularly after the death of owner Robert McNair, um, Bill O'Brien has positioned himself to have that authority. And his personnel decisions have not been good the the last two years. So if you're asking me to explain or justify what's going on there, I can't. I, I think it's a mistake. I'm one of those people who also believes in checks and balances. The problem is coaches have a mentality to win now. General managers typically have, you know, a mindset of of trying to win now with an eye on the future. And sometimes those things that there is a conflict there between the coach and the GM because of that. And you need um, buffers and balances. Coaches sometimes get emotional as as it relates to players. And you need a general manager to kind of step in and say, hey, slow down. You know, we can make this work. Or, Or maybe you tell them that, you know, the coach loves a player and the GM has to say, look, put your feelings aside. This is not the right guy for us. There are all those sorts of dynamics that come into play. So I have never been a believer in having one guy have complete authority. And in the case of, of the Houston Texans, we're seeing um, the worst case scenario in terms of when you do give one person full authority, how that can negatively impact a club. That's all with Mr. Jim Trotter. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I'm excited to continue reading more of your work, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again soon. All right. I appreciate you having me. Thank you for listening to Put In Work. For updates on future episodes, you can follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at Put In Work Pod.